So uh, let's turn to Acts chapter uh, 19. And while you're turning there, you know, I was talking to somebody today about the Lord, and they called me a Jesus freak. I haven't heard that term in ages, Jesus freak. That's from back in the 70s, you know. So uh, I'm glad to be a Jesus freak. Okay. Well, uh, now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to preach about three different temples tonight, okay, in the Bible. The Bible gives some uh, scriptures on the different temples, you know, and some heathen temples and that. I want to talk about three specific temples, and we're just going to see what the Lord has to say to our hearts through these, these temples here. So uh, in Acts chapter 19, we're, we're going to read about the, the temple of Diana and how, uh, 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 what's his name, Paul, <laughs> he, was, uh, he, was in, he was sending some guys, to, some of his disciples on to Macedonia, but he's going to stay over there in Ephesus for a little while. And down here in verse 22, it says, so he sent into Macedonia. Let's have a word of prayer. I'm sorry. Okay, but Lord, I just ask you to bless the message tonight, and I thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to preach your word, and I pray you speak to hearts and that Christ will be lifted up. And if someone's unsaved, I pray they'll come to know Christ as their Savior. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, Acts chapter 19, verse 22, it says, So he sent into Macedonia two of them that ministered unto him, Timotheus and Erastus, but he... But he himself stayed in Asia for a season. And in and the same time, there arose no small stir about that way. For a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith, which made silver, silver shrines for Diana, bought no small gain unto the craftsmen, whom he called together with the workmen of like occupation and said, Sirs, you know that by this craft we have our wealth. Moreover, you see and hear that not alone at Ephesus, but almost throughout all Asia, this Paul hath persuaded and turned away much people, saying they be no gods, which are made with hands. I guess he would have been a Jesus freak, wouldn't he? <laughs> and then verse 27, <clears throat> so that not only by our craft is in danger to be set at naught, but also that the temple of the great goddess Diana should be despised, and her magnificence should be destroyed whom all Asia and the world worshipped. Now here I'm uh, talking about this, uh, this heathen temple, a temple to the goddess Diana, a Greek temple. And if you look at history, you look it up and, and, and you study about this temple, it was, it was a spectacular temple. It was lavishly furnished. It had statues inlaid with gold throughout the uh, temple. They had the, a meteor from so-called so from, from Jupiter, they had that rock in there. They had images of silver and gold and paintings. And, and of course, Demetrius and these craftsmen, they made a, a, a good living on that kind of stuff. Just like when you, know, you, you go in some parts of the country where the Catholic churches are big and they have special shrines. And they, they sell all their little sh images of, of Mary and the saints and things. They make good money in those idols. And Demetrius is doing the same thing. And, and they had exquisite furniture. And, and this temple... You know, they had 127 pillars made of marble, and they were in double rows round about the building, and they were inlaid and decorated with gold also. And these pillars are between 40 and 60 feet high, and the building was 377 feet long and 151 feet wide. And the Temple of Diana is considered to be one of the seven wonders of the world. And God mentions it in, in Scripture. 
and God gives a, a, an adjective for it. It says here in verse 27, it said that, uh, uh, but also that the temple of the great goddess Diana should not be despised, and her magnificence should be destroyed, whom all Asia and the world worship. And, and so God's word called this temple ma magnificent, okay? And, and this word magnificence, this is the only place in the King James Bible this word is found. I know you'll find that hard to believe, but you won't find magnificence. And, and, uh, and you know, this isn't some mistake. It isn't some type error. You know, I, I believe that my Bible's inspired of God. I believe every word in this King James Bible is just where God wants it to be. I believe all the adjectives and adverbs were, were, were preserved and, and placed in place as we have it today. Now, these new perversions, I wouldn't trust them for anything. I mean, you, you take the word hell out and put the word grave in. That's not the same. And, and they change what God hath said. But, but, you know, before the world began, God had his word in his heart already before it was ever written down. And he had that word magnificence just where he wanted it to be. And, and what does magnificence mean? Well, it, it's not a big meaning. It just means basically that uh, uh, to be grand in appearance to be of great outward splendor. And, and that's what this temple was. And, of course, this chapter goes on talking about Demetrius and Paul and all that was going on. But one thing about this temple, as magnificent as it was to behold, the inside of it was lifeless. The, the, the goddess Diana was a dead god, a false god, and spiritually it was just a lifeless temple, an empty temple. So that's one temple. Now, let's go to another temple, and I want you to turn there. It's real important that you see this. This is in 1 Chronicles chapter 22, and, and you have to see it. I know sometimes it's really uh, painful to turn those pages, but, uh, but let me tell you something. We ought to be grateful we got hands that can do that, huh? Man. And, uh, but you've got to see this to make this sermon work. And now this next temple is the Solomon's temple, okay? And, and in this passage here, it's about David, how he was preparing the material for the temple because he knew he wasn't allowed to build it, so uh, his son was going to build it, so he wanted to be part of it, so he got all this material together. And down here in, in uh, 2 Chronicles chapter 22, starting at verse 1, it says, Then David said, This is the house of the Lord God. This is the altar of the burnt offering for the Israel. And David commanded to gather together the stranger that were in the land of Israel, and he set masons to hew, up, to hew wrought stones to build the house of God. And David prepared iron in abundance for the nails, for the doors of the gates, for the joinings, for the brass in abundance without weight. Also cedar trees in abundance for the Zidonians, and they of Tyre brought much cedar wood to David. And, and look what it says here. And David said, Solomon, my son, is young and tender, and the house that is to be built for the Lord must be exceedingly magnifical of fame and of glory throughout all countries. I will therefore now make preparation for it, for David prepared abundantly before his death. So you can see he, he put a lot of work into this and, and a, a lot of sacrifice, and, and, and the people helped him out, and they worked with him, and, and, and just building the house of God, just like you do in a church. You know, a lot of folks always, all trying to make this church work together and, and putting things together. But look down in verse 5 again. It said that, that this building must be exceedingly magnificent of fame 
and glory throughout all the countries. And there's a word magnifical. And, and, uh, and that, that word, that's the only place in the King James Bible you'll find the word magnifical. It doesn't say magnificence. It's magnifical. And, and uh, it's not some, uh, some Italian word talking about pizza, you know, that got slipped in there. That's a King James word, magnifical. And, and, uh, and God, who put this word together and preserved it, and if he can preserve the whole universe and the micro-universe, which goes just as far downwards as the outer universe goes outwards, surely he can preserve his word and, and keep the words in there that he wants. And what does magnifical mean now? Well, it's similar to magnificence. Uh, you know, it means to be of grand, uh, to be very grand, of much splendor, but not only in appearance, but also on the inside. And that's the difference. And, and so when you have these two temples, you know, uh, Diana's temple couldn't be magnificent because the inside was dead. But Solomon's temple was alive because that's where God dwelt. God took up residence in, the, in, in Solomon's temple. You know, he filled that temple with his Shekinah glory when it was finished on the dedication day. And, and that must have been something to see. Uh, well, I guess it was too bright to see. They had to close their eyes, huh? But, uh, you know, inside the Solomon's temple, not only did it have the Shekinah glory of God, but it had the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat an altar of sacrifice. There were oxen and, 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 and uh, sheep that were uh, sacrificed daily for the sins of the people. Lives were changed. Uh, sins are forgiven. Really, Solomon's temple was magnificent, just like the Bible says. And Diana's temple, it was magnificent, but on the inside it was empty. And, and uh, and then, it, and of course, it has the word exceedingly magnificent because, boy, you put God's Shekinah glory in there, and there's not enough words in the human language to describe it, is there? So you just put down the exceedingly magnificent. And now let's get to the third temple. I want to talk about three temples. And you've got to see this one. This is in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And you have to turn there. You've you got to turn here. And, uh, and uh, this is the most glorious of the three temples. Uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, in verse 19 and 20, and you're all familiar with this, it says, What? Know you not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you, which you have of God, and you are not your own, for you are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body which, and in your spirit which are God's. And think about this. He's saying that we're his temple now. This body, he, he, the Holy Spirit has taken up residence in us. And, and what, a, what a glorious thing to be a temple of God. That's what we are. We've been bought with a price the day we got saved. And, and we're supposed to take these bodies to glorify God with them. And, and uh, you know, uh, in John chapter 14, verse 16 and 17, you know, you don't have to turn there, but Back in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit only came upon men of old to do great works and great deeds, but it didn't take up residence in, 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 in men. But, but through Christ and the price and the debt he paid for us on the cross, he made a way that now the Holy Spirit can take up residence in us and never leave, stay with us permanently. And, and the, the disciples, they were waiting for this promise. And, and, and John 14, verse 16 says, 
And Jesus said, And I will pray the Father that he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, but it seeth him not, neither knoweth him, but you know him, for he dwelleth with you and shall be in you. And for us, he's in us. We have the Holy Spirit. He, he, he's taken up residence in each of our lives, those of us that are truly saved. And, and he promised he'd abide forever. He'd never leave, never forsake us. You know, we were washed. You know, before he could take up residence in this filthy old flesh, had to get cleansed, didn't we? And I don't think soap and water was enough, so he washed us with his blood, forgave us our sins, and then he justified us. Man, what, what a privilege we have. Kind of makes us special, doesn't it? And, and, and then he goes on to say in Romans chapter 6 that uh, he crucified that old sin nature in us. And in verse 14, it says, sin no longer has dominion over us. You know, we're, 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 the, we're the children of God, and, and, and we, we are free from sin now. Not, not, I'm not saying we don't sin, but we don't, if we sin, it's a choice now. We're before we were slaves of sin. But thank goodness he crucified that sin nature, and we could rise above our sin in our lives. And, and again, he calls us sons and daughters of God. Now, now, that's a pretty high standing that each one of us has. And, and, you know, as temples of the Holy Spirit, in view of the price he paid for us, think about this. A believer has no right to live a carnal Christian life. He doesn't have that right. Not when the, the third person of the Trinity has taken up residence in your life. And I don't know how... A saved person can continue to hold on to his sins after he got saved. You know, you know, when a person gets saved and they come out of that old sinful lifestyle, they want to forsake that sin. And then you have son to make a profession of faith, and they just hang on to those sins. I don't understand that unless they didn't truly get saved. But, uh, but you know, when you're filled with the Holy Spirit of God, uh, there ought to be a change. And, and, you know, God didn't pay that sin debt so we can be t content with a half-hearted, carnal Christian life. God, God called each one of us to a better Christian life. doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman. You know, you ladies need to live that Christian life as much as that man in the house does. And the kids, it doesn't matter if you're a little kid. Just because you're a little kid doesn't mean you're special. No, you've got to stand up to, to, and live God's word just like everybody else in the church. And you've got to answer for your sins as much as the, the older folks do. We, we're all accountable to God. And, and uh, you know, we have a, a God-given life. When you get saved, from that moment on, your life is special. It's a God-given life. And to throw that life away, that's got to be the biggest crime. So just let it go uh, by the wayside. You know, we're to be magnificent Christians, not magnificent Christians. And, and uh, you know, God's not interested in us just looking good on the outside. And it sure is easy to come to church on Sunday mornings and, and look good on the outside. And the ladies can really look good on the outside, huh? You know, they can cover up themselves with makeup and things. But, you know, God sees in the heart, doesn't he? And, and, and uh, you know, it's one thing to come to church on Sunday, but how do you live the rest of the week? That would be consistently all week long the same. You know, Jesus told those Pharisees, you know, they, they, they walked around and, and they had their little clothes on and their tassels and their hair just right and their little trinkets and prayer beads and, and they were just looking real good on the outside. They were magnificent looking on the outside, 
But what did he say about their insides? He said in Matthew 23, 17, that the inside, they were nothing but whitewashed coffins full of dead men's bones. And I don't want to be that kind of a Christian. I don't want to be that for anything. And, and, uh, and you know, this new generation of Christians filling our churches and our countries, our country are quite different. They're a lot more carnal than the previous generation was. And truth doesn't mean a whole lot to them anymore. They're going by their silly feelings rather than by truth. And, and, uh, and, and, and many of them have traded in truth for that feel-good gospel. And I get around in a lot of churches every year, all year long. And I get in good ones. I get in dead ones. And I get in carnal ones. And, uh, uh, and, and you know, if you do that all the time, you kind of get good at the business, you might say. You can, I can pick things up as soon as I go into church. If I don't see the track rack, that tells me one thing. And then from then on, I can see other things. But I'll tell you what, uh, this, the younger generation today of, of Christians in our country, uh, they, they sure trade in a lot. They're, they're, not, they're, not, they're not concerned about, about a, a real Christian walk. They're more concerned about a feel-good gospel. And they traded in holiness for pleasure. You know, you know, where in the Bible did God call us, call us to live a pleasurable life? He wants us to live in holiness and righteousness. That's, that's the Christian walk because God is holy and righteous. And, and if you want to be like God, you, 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 you'd, you'd want to be that way. You know, there's a lot of Christians in our churches, young folks. They sit among us and, and, uh, and they walk among us, and yet they indulge in drunkenness uh, on the side, drugs, dance. They, they indulge in fornication. You know, a lot of these young folks that I meet in these churches, they'll come up because they sometimes people get mad at you and they want to say something afterwards. And, and, and they'll come up and say, you know, me and my girlfriend have been living together for five years now, going to church. I don't understand why you're calling that a sin. And I said, because God calls it a sin. God calls it fornication. Well, what's wrong with fornication? That's not adultery. There's no difference. God says that adultery and fornication is an abomination. And God's a holy God. And he doesn't make exceptions. This one lady one time, pastor, had testimony time. It was in a smaller church. So in a smaller church, you can have testimony time before the church service. And folks are giving about God's blessings. And this one lady gets up and, and, uh, and she said, I just want to tell everybody here that you all know that I, I take fentanyl and I'm on drugs. But I've got it under control. And I just want everybody to know, even though they put me down, God understands my situation and he's all right with it. And, and I, I kind of grinned watching the pastor. So how's he going to handle that? And as soon as she sat down, he says, next. You know, just, just passed it by. But, you know, in a way, she was blaspheming God, saying that he understood her sin, and he was behind that sin and saying it's okay. You know, God doesn't tolerate sin. He doesn't compromise. He's a holy God. He's perfectly holy and righteous. And that pastor called me two weeks later to tell me that she died from an overdose. Can you imagine that? I mean, man, when you're out there on the road, you see a lot of crazy things go happen. But I tell you what, uh, 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 this generation today, they're, they're, they're trading in their, uh, their, their walk with God for that feel-good gospel. And, 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 uh, and, and, and they're excusing their sins they're justifying their sins they all say oh you don't understand brother ray uh, this and that and god understands this and, and they just go on trying to just cover it up but i'll tell you what 
God stands there perfectly holy, righteous, just, and he doesn't flinch. He doesn't bend this way and that way. He's perfectly holy. He can't, he can't accept anything that's unholy. He can't accept no wrongness because he's perfectly right. He's righteous. And perfect justice says that there's, there's no forgiveness, no mercy for the sins you do, except because of what he did on the cross with his perfect love and paying that debt, he can dispense that, that, uh, that forgiveness. But for the unsaved, they don't have that. And, and uh, there's no exception. You know, one day we're all going to give account. All those who profess to be Christians are going to give account of their lives and how they invested this God-given Christian life. And, and they're going to give an account for the opportunities God give them, given to them, uh, the amount of time God's given them, uh, the gifts, the finances. You know, some people were blessed at finances. I wonder why a Christian's blessed at finances. So that maybe you can buy two or three homes and a cottage and some boats and garages. Or maybe it's for the Lord's work. Uh, you know, uh, privilege. Some people have more privilege than others. That's just a fact. And what do you do with it? Take advantage of your fellow man or do you use it for God's glory? You know, God's invested things in each one of us. And he's got it all recorded. And one day we'll have to give an account. And we're going to find out. And I don't know about you, but when I stand before him that day, I want to be a magnificent Christian. And not just merely magnificent on the outside. And let me just share real quick here how to have a magnificent Christian life. Now, uh, back there in, uh, well, back in Chronicles when it's talking about uh, uh, David getting all the material ready for the temple, you know, as we read there, they, they got all this stuff together, all these nails and hinges and brass and wood and everything, and, and the people were involved. They were, they were sacrificing their time, taking time out from work, taking time out from their hobbies and fishing, and, and, and they were sacrificing for the Lord's work, for the house of God. And they were putting time and effort and sweat, and they were giving uh, of, of their substance. And, you know, if you're going to have a magnificent Christian life, it's going to take sacrifice. That's what it is, sacrifice. And nowhere in the Bible, nowhere is the Christian life to be a life of ease and comfort. I know Olstein preaches on it all the time, but, uh, you know, he's a false prophet. Uh, that's a fact. And uh, the Bible makes it clear the Christian life is a life of sacrifice, uh, selfless sacrifice. And if you're going to have a magnificent temple for the Holy Spirit to dwell in, and, and uh, it's going to take sacrifice to, to build on that and to maintain it. And, and, uh, and I want to have a fruitful Christian life. I want to have a Christ-honoring life. And that, that takes work, and it has to be done on purpose. Somewhere along the mind, we've got to make up our mind. What am I going to be? Well, I want to be a praise to God. And, and so it takes sacrifice, and it takes submission. You know, over there in Second uh, Chronicles 7, you know, it talks about the Shekinah glory of God when it came down on the temple. If you read there, when it came down, what did the people do? I mean, try to imagine if the Shekinah glory came down here. What would you do? Uh, you know, would you start taking pictures of it with your phone? i tell you what they did. They just automatically bowed themselves, on the, kneeled down and bowed before God and humbled themselves in submission. What else can you do in the presence of Almighty God and all His glory? It's just going to make you want to humble yourself and, and bow before Him and, and give Him the glory. And, and uh, uh, you know, uh, Paul 
apostle, when he got saved, yeah, he didn't say, well, Lord, uh, uh, I got some uh, prayer requests now. No, he didn't say, I need a new car. You know, you know what he did? The first thing he did was, Lord, what would you have me to do? He humbled himself before the Lord. And, and think about the time you got saved, when you came before the Savior for the first time in your life. I don't know. I don't know what it's like to grow up in a Christian environment, a church like this, and get saved, you know, as a teenager. I don't know what that's like. I just know that I got saved when I was 21, and I grew up as a Catholic, never had the Word of God, never had any truth, never knew any of these wonderful things. And, and uh, so when I met Jesus for the first time, it humbled me. And, and, and I bowed before him, and, and, you know, it just made you want to confess your sins. And then being in his presence, it made you want to forsake your sin. And I remember when I first got saved, I had a lot to learn. And uh, I didn't know a lot of things were sin that was in my life. I remember about four months later, after being in the church service, preachers preaching about drinking. Well, we grew up drinking in a Catholic home. We used to go to the bars all the time, shoot pool and things. And, and I kept doing it after I got saved because I didn't know any different. But you know what? When you truly get saved and you find out this is not right with God, you want to change, don't you? And I could just, I dropped that instantly and, and a lot of other things. But you know, it takes sacrifice, submission, and it takes surrender to have a magnificent Christian life. And, and, uh, and you know, God's will for the believer is to surrender his body as a living sacrifice. Uh, you know, Romans chapter 12, in verse 1, he says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And, you know, God's will for everybody's life here, young and old, teenagers and old folks, everybody, God's will is that we present this body. He didn't say your mind. He didn't say your good intentions. You know, you have a lot of times prayer meetings where folks have all these big prayers requests, but they never put feet to those prayers when they could, when they could. You know, a lot of those souls that you want to pray for, a lot of those folks, I, I, I want folks praying for me, too, for my, my, my loved ones that get saved, but if it's in my power to go visit them, I need to go put feet to those prayers. Amen? And that's, that's using this body, using these hands and feet, and my tongue and eyes, and, and a little bit of sweat. It takes a little bit of work, a little bit of gas money. But, you know, God wants us to present these bodies as a living sacrifice, to use them for him. And, uh, uh, you know, he says it's our reasonable service. The price he paid, the only reasonable thing we can do in return is to give our bodies back, you know, to him. And who dwells in our body? The Holy Spirit. It's his temple. It's only reasonable that we give ourselves back to him. You know, God, God didn't think about this. You know, the world has their cliches, and their viewpoint's different than the biblical viewpoint. And the world says, you know, we've got rights to our bodies, and women have rights to their bodies. But the Bible says we don't have any rights over these bodies of ours. Not us who are saved, because these things have been bought with a price. And, 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 and they are presented to God. And, and we don't have a right to put tattoos on this body or all that metal. Man, the metal people put in their faces. We don't have a right to put marijuana and vaping in it and tobacco. And, and uh, you know, we... Uh, and drugs, we don't have right, a right to, to use these bodies for fornicating in and yet come to church thinking, well, it's all right. 
God knows my situation. He knows I'm in love with her. And, and she's awfully pretty anyway, so it can't be wrong. But it's a sin, isn't it? It's still a sin. And, and uh, abortion, we know that's a murder. That's what it is. There's no way to color it up. And, and we don't have a right. And, and, uh, and, you know, I've been seeing it now. There's a few homosexuals slipping in in some churches. Of course, the good pastors, you know, they, they don't let them join, and they have to deal with it. But I tell you what, what a filthy sin. That's what it is. Bible, Romans chapter 1, calls those folks, that says that they have a reprobate mind. Because it takes a reprobate mind to be a homosexual. And it doesn't matter if the government made it a civil right. It's still wrong. Our bodies belong to God. And we're given these bodies to glorify him with these bodies. And, and, you know, you think about that Solomon's temple. What was sad about it was the later generations got away from God because they eventually loved their sin more than Jehovah until finally they were taken away into captivity. And that once exceedingly magnificent temple of God was destroyed. Man, what, a, what a terrible thing that was. And the same thing when a believer, you know, this, this temple now, when he, when he lowers his convictions and compromises with the world and sin, he's going to end up in ruin. And, and, and uh, you know, Demas, we read about Demas in the Bible. He, he'd go on those missionary journeys with the Apostle Paul and I guess with Barnabas. And, and uh, he, went, well, he went on one missionary journey with him. But, uh, and and he, he was a real help, but later... He went back into the world, Paul said. He went back to the things of the world because he loved the things of the world more. He loved that money. He loved that position and power. And, and he went back, and, and, and you never hear of him again in the Scriptures. He backslid. And I always wonder, what kind of passages would have been written about Demas if he stayed true to God? You know, you, you, you read about Barnabas. You read about uh, John Mark. You read about... Paul, I wonder what it could have been written about Demas, but he, his life was, was empty, was lifeless. He threw away that magnificent temple that he had. And, and, uh, and, you know, if you live a sacrificial, submitted, surrendered life to the Lord, and you do it on purpose, and you work on it, you, you will have a magnificent, magnificent temple for the Holy Spirit to dwell in. And I think that's what our, our, our desire ought to be tonight. And I want to ask you tonight, is your temple, is your life, Christian life, a magnificent Christian life, or is it a magnificent Christian life? So let's just bow our heads.